Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Carbon Curve. I'm your host, Naeem Merchant, and this is a podcast about the collective action approach needed to remove billions of tons of carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and fend off the worst effects of climate change. Today's episode is sponsored by Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth. A little over a month ago, direct air capture company Carbon Capture announced plans to build a massive new DAC system in Wyoming. Carbon Capture and its storage partner expect this project to permanently remove 5 million tons of CO2 from the atmosphere every year by 2030. It would also be the first DAC deployment to use Class 6 wells for permanent CO2 storage. A few things stood out to me about this announcement. First, the scale. This is the largest DAC facility ever announced. I wanted to dig deeper on the company's proposed modular approach to build up to its massive 5 million ton per year target capacity by 2030. Second, the announcement specifically referenced the Inflation Reduction Act. I wanted to learn more about how policy was a catalyst in this company's major decision to move forward with a project of this size. And finally, I was curious about Carbon Capture's partnerships with the state of Wyoming and Frontier Carbon Solutions. I wanted to hear more about how strategic partnerships translate into on-the-ground deployments of new carbon removal or CDR projects. So in this episode, I'm speaking to Carbon Capture CEO and CTO about what it's actually going to take from now until 2030, from technology, policy, partnerships, and carbon markets to realize this ambitious plan, and then what comes next. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe to this podcast at carboncurve.substack.com or through your favorite podcast app. And if you'd like to get in touch, shoot me an email at naeem at carboncurve.co. I hope you enjoy the show. Today, my guest is Adrian Corliss, CEO and CTO of Carbon Capture, Inc. Carbon Capture develops and deploys direct air capture machines that can be connected in large arrays to remove massive amounts of CO2 from the atmosphere. With a groundbreaking modular open systems architecture, Carbon Capture's technology platforms allow for a broad range of sorbent options, plug and play upgrades, mass production, unlimited scalability, and rapid technology iterations. Carbon Capture systems run on zero emissions energy, capturing atmospheric CO2 for either permanent atmospheric carbon removal or for producing low carbon synthetic fuels. Adrian has spent more than 25 years developing and commercializing products in the cleantech industry. From 2013 to 2018, he was the CEO of Carbon Engineering, where he successfully developed the company into a recognized global leader in CO2 direct air capture, piloting industrial scale systems in under two years. In addition, Adrian has spent over 15 years commercializing industrial hydrogen, fuel cell, and pump technologies, serving as CEO of Rotolithic Technologies, CTO of Plug Power, and CTO of CellX Power Products. He holds a Master's of Science degree from the University of Victoria in British Columbia, Canada, my second guest on this podcast with UVic credentials, with specialization in energy systems, cryogenics, and liquid natural gas. Adrian, thanks so much for being here. Uh, It's a pleasure, and thanks so much for uh, inviting me. I'm looking forward to the conversation. Absolutely. So in early September, Carbon Capture announced a direct air capture and storage project to be built in Wyoming, capable of permanently removing 
5 million tons of atmospheric CO2 every year by 2030. That would make it by far larger than any facility that exists today. Adrian, you have a long history in the carbon removal world. So before I get into what it will likely take to achieve this target of 5 million tons of CO2 removed every year by 2030, tell me about the genesis, the founding story of carbon capture and how you got involved. Sure. So I think the, you know, the, the, the carbon capture origin stories, it's a great one. It goes back to 2019. And so carbon capture is one of Bill Gross's companies coming out of Idea Lab in Pasadena. It's been about 150 that he's created over the years. Uh, and this is one that came on the heels of the creation of Heliogen, which was a solar company and Energy Vault, which is an energy storage company. And I think he realized the next needed to be related to carbon. So Bill has, uh, you know, he, he has uh, a part of his schedule every year is to, is to be in Davos. And so in 2019, he was in Davos and ran across Mark Benioff. And so the two of them started talking about, you know, what was more important? Was it really about cleaning up the ocean or was it about cleaning up the atmosphere? And so they had a long and I think kind of interesting debate as I understand it. And I, and I think that at the end, Bill convinced Mark that actually it was the air. There's way more issues in terms of the, the, the sheer amount of pollution that uh, the humans are putting into the atmosphere versus the ocean. Not that the ocean wasn't important, but they agreed that, you know, that there was something that was missing in terms of solutions and solution space. So, so, you know, by the time they'd left Davos and ended up back in North America, they'd agreed both to, uh, to make an investment, to start doing research and direct air capture. And that was kind of the genesis of carbon capture. It didn't even have a name yet. It wasn't even incorporated, but, but that was basically a commitment from, from the two of them to start. And so over the years, uh, you know, that's from 20. 19 to, to 2021, there was really what, you know, Bill does. He puts the team together. They basically are looking at the technology, looking at white space for, for new approaches to, to a problem. And so by 2021, mid 2021, I think it became apparent that a, that there was a technology platform that made sense. It was unique and probably more important, you know, the, I would say in general society, industry, the capital markets had all turned towards recognizing director capture as being an opportunity that warranted, uh, you know, warranted more effort. And so, so Bill, Bill reached out to me, you know, mid 2021 and said, Hey, you know, I've stood up a, another director capture company. I know you've done this in the past. I was at the time uh, with Rotolyptic up in Canada. And he said, would you be interested in, in, uh, in getting back into direct, direct, direct air capture? So, so for me, I was up in Canada. I, I called my wife and I said, you know, this opportunity has come up. I said, it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's what I want to do. I said, but it's in California. It's non-negotiable. What do you think? And, you know, I think within five minutes, I got a response saying, you know, life's short, go for it. And she still doesn't remember that conversation, but I, I do, I have it too, I have it written down. So, so I, I basically dropped what I was doing and, 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 and moved to California. So I've been now in California for the better part of a year. I still, you know, still travel back and forth between Canada and, and here, but, uh, but that's, that's how I, I got involved with carbon capture the, the last year. And we'll talk a lot about it. It's been a lot of fun. I think we've grown from about five when I arrived, it was, you know, it was really early when uh, when I arrived, it's just a technical team. We're now at about forty five. We have a obviously a very aggressive approach in how we're looking to commercialize the technology and get to market. But yeah, that's that's you know that's both the company's origin story and and how I got here. That's a great story. Uh, a presentation that Bill Gross made at a conference I was at back in twenty eighteen is is actually probably what got me into working on climate, where he made a really convincing case about you know the damage we're doing to this very 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 thin layer of atmosphere surrounding the Earth. 
right? And the need to reduce our emissions and, and clean up our emissions, that was really inspirational to me and got me thinking very seriously about uh, transitioning into this field. So that that's that's really cool. And it's always great to hear from more, uh, I'm Canadian myself, and it's always great to hear right. from more Canadian entrepreneurs that are leading the way here in the carbon removal industry. So on carbon capture specifically, what what makes carbon capture's technology and process unique? So I think there's there's a couple of things that I think uh, you know, you mentioned a few of them when uh, when you gave the introduction to the company. So first of all, you know we're we're a technology company that's developing direct air capture machines, and so you know we're taking a modular approach. And I think the modularity is is not if not necessarily the unique part of it. I mean, we're using a material science approach and it lends itself to uh, to a cyclic process that can be you know made at relatively small scales. So the modularity for us is is the ability to go and disconnect the uh, you know the actual site from the production and the ability to go think about how we actually drive you know basically drive uh, you know the the cost down through being able to build things off site to be able to you know build uh, a lot of the same thing and if you kind of think that you know probably a great comparison is thinking about you know just the the analogy uh, between you know between solar a solar array or, or a solar project and a, and a thermal energy project that you know originally you would have thought there's no way that that you know thousands of solar panels could, could compete with a single turbine, but the reality is it, it can because there's just a lot of opportunity to innovate and drive costs down at the unit level. So I think they'll, you know, we believe that there's certainly going to be a lot of that same, you know, that same uh, benefit accrued to a modular approach to direct air capture. But I think probably the more important part of, of this is that this idea of, of an open architecture with respect to materials. And so we've really embraced the idea that, you know, that the the rate of advancement of material science related to direct air capture is incredible right now. And if you went back and looked five years ago at how much unique research was going on uh, for sorbents for direct air capture, the number would have been probably close to zero. Uh, now there's over 100 programs at least that are in different labs and, and you know university labs and corporate labs around the world that are specifically thinking about materials for direct air capture. And so, you know, what we're seeing, you know, in in our shop is that, you know, we've got a material we're going to be going to market with next year. You know, we've got a, a great partner that that we're working with that has the capacity to grow with us and uh, and we think it's quite unique. But we're also seeing, you know, about a half dozen additional unique materials that we have access to in our testing or that we have being developed on our behalf through different uh, universities in North America that are going to continue to push the envelope on capabilities of materials. And, and by having that modular system and that sort of openness to have these relationships being developed, you know, we have a, a pretty clear pathway between now and, and, and sort of the late 2020s where, you know, we see the materials we're testing today showing a constant evolution, you know, or, or giving us a, a pathway to constant evolution in, in performance and capabilities of our, of our modules. Uh, and then the, what we see, you know, going 2030 onwards is really the, that the programs we're developing at the university lab levels will start to bear fruit. And I think that's when you start to see, again, these really significant improvements in capacity and kinetics, basically how many cycles a day you can get out of your materials, the, the, the durability of materials and their costs. So all those things are driving in the right direction uh, through the next decade. And then there's the things we don't even know about yet. And so, you know, we've, we've been really I would say out there and exploring and talking to, to individuals for the last three or four months, maybe maybe it's more like six months now, uh, you know, and, and we've uncovered an incredible array of opportunity and materials. And and we suspect, again, there's there's probably more we don't know about than what we do know about. And, and then, you know, this idea that the materials that are going to get to gigaton scale for sure haven't been invented yet or probably even conceived. So, so I think that's a differentiator is that that strong focus on, on material science and, and, 
and an openness to, you know, to have an architecture that's going to accommodate a wide variety of materials over time. I think the second is, is a sort of a business differentiator, which is, you know, early on, we realized if we really wanted to drive scale and, uh, and, and uh, of the business and also, you know, drive the business quickly to market, we needed to take control of project development. And so Project Bison, we'll talk, I'm sure we'll talk lots about that today. You know, that's really, you know, the culmination of about nine months of work on the project development side to really, you know, go and, and put together the project from our perspective, you know, and, and, and basically not let another, you know, project developer be in between us and the customer. And so by being a developer, A, you know, we can, you know, we can think about how we go quick. We can think about how we absorb risk uh, and we also can keep ourselves customer facing. And I think that's, you know, in any business, not allowing, especially in the early days to have some other organization uh, between you and the customer is a key part of being successful. So it's kind of, again, a second, a second layer of the business that we've added in, uh, you know, in this, sort of in the, the, the second half of the year that I've been here. That's really interesting. And on the open systems architecture kind of approach, I'm assuming that the benefit of that is that as you come across new materials and make advancements in the material sciences side of things, you know, the supply chain is also something that needs to be figured out around that. And so the more of an open systems architecture you have, that means that supply chain ready materials can be kind of plug and play in, in your modular technology. Am I getting that right? Uh, yeah, for sure. And I think that, that, you know, when you think about sorbents, you know, again, to go get into the weeds a little bit, but in the sorbents themselves, you know, they tend to be developed, you know, at a, at a you know, powder or in some form, which is in relatively small scale at some lab, you know, they're synthesized in, in grams to start with. And I think that that's, you know, that's sort of the ability for us to go and, and play in that arena and, you know, look at, you know, at dozens of different ideas at the small scale and test them in our facilities. But you're right in terms of then going from there and thinking about how do you actually, you know, build this out into, you know, hundreds of tons of, of materials to get into hundreds of modules, you know, some of our partners that we're working with now have that capability. So, you know, that we don't, we don't have to, we don't have to get that involved. But there are others, particularly, you know, when we're thinking about university labs that are, you know, can deliver us an, an, you know, a really interesting material, you know, in sort of gram scale and a powder form. And there's a lot that has to happen between getting that, you know, at a, from, as a powder, getting it structured, you know, ultimately into something that we can put into cartridges that are low pressure drop and deal with, you know, the, the, just the, the realities of, of what the environmental conditions will be for, for direct air capture and then figuring out again, how to get them made. And so, you know, we're certainly depending on the partner playing in those different, um, steps of the value chain. So we def definitely have work going on and struck how we structure materials. Uh, we have programs that are, you know, both in-house and with, with third parties on, on that. Uh, and then we're also talking to a number of different um, industrial, industrial companies and materials companies that have an interest, even if it's not their material in getting involved in synthesis and production of those materials at scale. So our involvement can, you know, can be anything from, you know, just purchasing a finished a finished cartridge to, uh, to, you know, to just going and, 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 and supporting the, you know, the whole value chain, right from grams of powder. That's really interesting. I've always kind of assumed that as carbon removal companies in general, uh, get to commercial scale, they're going to step away as technology developers and let another party act as a project developer. And if I'm getting you right, it sounds like you envision carbon capture playing the project developer role as well. Is that right? It is. And, I, and you know, especially if we kind of just sort of think about what's going to happen to you now and uh, at the end of the decade, I think for sure we're going to be, we're going to be the project developer. And and I, I think the reason is that again, A, there's, there's, you know, there's not a, there's not another organization that's out there that has the, the skills or experience necessary 
to do this. Now, there's lots of really good project developers out there. We're not inventing the approach to project development. I think, you know, so in the context of, of going how you raise capital into a project and how you de-risk it and how you think about bringing in debt and all those sorts of things, you know, we're, we're bringing in help and, and the right kinds of partnerships and skills into the organization to, to be good at doing that. But I think, you know, with, you know, the, the opportunities that have presented themselves in, in, especially in, in the U S you know, with the, with the bipartisan energy or infrastructure bill and, and the IRA that's passed, um, you know, I think that it's, it's incumbent on us to take advantage of what's going on here and move as quickly as we can. And I think for our investors also, you know, to, to figure out how to create the most value for our shareholders as well, too. And I think, again, like I said earlier, it's, it's about, you know, being the, the, the interface to the end customers. That's very cool. So Carbon Capture describes Project Bison as the first massively scalable deployment in the U.S. Tell us more about Project Bison. How is it potentially more scalable than other planned DAC projects in the U.S.? What are your rollout plans and what are your key objectives with this effort between now and, and 2030? Sure. So I think, you know, going back to this idea of massively scalable, it, it implies a couple of things. It also means scalable from a small starting point. And so, so the work we've done over the last nine months to get Project Bison up and running has included also the development of, of partnerships on the, the sequestration, the compression sequestration side as well. So we've also announced the partnership with Frontier Carbon Solutions, which is key because, you know, again, they're, they're going to be, and they already are in the process of, of developing the, the sequestration business itself. And so that, that's the implication of doing the geology and then, and then filing for the permits for classic swells and then, you know, doing the drilling and completion and, and ultimately being the company that, that will take custody of the CO2 that we capture, compress it, sequestered, and then be responsible for the MRV of, of, of those projects over time. So it's, you know, I would say that for a lot of companies, the challenge is, is that, you know, that infrastructure is necessarily expensive. And yes, you, you probably aware from, from the, you know, I'm sure the work you've been doing that, you know, there's not a lot of class six wells out there today. So, so we actually, you know, had to spend a lot of time thinking about who's the right partner that, and, and how do we align our interests so that we could start in a modest way. So it's phase one of project bison for 2023, 2024 is, is around 12,000 tons. So about 25 or so modules. Uh, and then over time, you know, we, we continue to build that out. So the idea of scalable is that, you know, we can start with a relatively modest amount of, uh, of equipment in the field. And that's, that allows it, you know, A, to, to, to minimize the amount of capital at risk from, from our perspective to do, to do the deep risking steps and uh, also to validate the commercial side and the generation of not just the voluntary credits that are obviously, you know, out there for, for companies like us, but also, you know, figuring out how to maneuver through the implications of 45Q because it's, it's not, you know, as you can imagine, it's, it's simple at the surface, but in practice, it's going to be very complicated. So, so, you know, once we've got through that first stage, it allows us to just to continue to build on that same site. And, and I think from the very beginning, one of the things I wanted to make sure we avoided was this idea of going through and strat, you know, building and stranding a series of progressively larger projects. And I think, you know, some of the others in the space are, are, are thinking about, you know, the way they grow as a series of projects that are getting larger and larger. Um, our, how we're viewing this is a project that gets larger and larger. So, so, you know, the things that we'll deploy in 2023 and 2024 will be part of that project for the next 20 years or more. And so, you know, the partner that we chose is committed to scale with us in terms of capacity to, to, to compress and sequester more and more CO2, but also, you know, 
that particular site that we've chosen, I, mean, I think we're not exactly saying where in Wyoming it is, but but that particular project, you know, we've we've chosen to characterize it as a five megaton project, but the geology in that area is, is sort of got gigatons, sorry, gigaton capacity of, of, of geology and storage of core space. So there's, you know, from that perspective, there is no limit to the scale of the, the capacity to, to sequester CO2. And it's also in a region that's got, you know, pretty good wind assets as well too. So, you know, alongside what we're doing on direct air capture, we have to be thinking about the scale out of the, of the power side of this business as well too. So I think that, that, you know, we've chosen all those things again, when we say massively scalable is because, you know, even at five megatons, that's, that, that's just a, that's just a point in time we've chosen to say, that's where we want to be by 2030, but it doesn't mean we won't, and, you know, we won't continue to build out on that site indefinitely. And so in relation to getting to that target, you know, what are some of the unknowns about your technology or your process that exists today that you need to figure out over the coming years in order for Project Bison to be successful? Well, I think the the two that I think, you know, we're most focused on and I think are key to success is, is going to be around this, you know, the materials themselves. So, you know, we've got a, a material that we, you know, that we've uh, made a decision around launching with in 2023 and 2024. Um, you know, so the, I think that we look at our, our, our technology roadmap out through the, 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 you know, say the, the next five or six years, you know, it's going to be our ability to work with the vendors to continue to have the, the supply chain keep up on the material side. So that's definitely going to be something that is, is central to, you know, our focus is on the material side and the, and the, partnerships around around scaling um and then others as i mentioned is is really on the uh, the scalability of a of a of an energy system or or the energy that's going to provide the the heat and power for these you know in the context of wyoming because you know again it's, it's very it's very specific to the region that we're in uh, you know, wyoming you know, it's got good capacity for the growth of renewables, but it's got not the greatest mix in terms of its current grid. So, you know, the, it, it has its own complexities in terms of how we manage that over time and how we, you know, how we get to market again in a small, a relatively small scale in 23 and 24 and grow that over time. So, you know, that strategy on, on energy is a big part of, uh, you know, again, where the risks are and what we need to be focused on over the next uh, five or six years. You know, you also mentioned this project will make use of class six wells for permanent CO2 storage. Can you speak to some of the challenges and opportunities that are associated with that? So, I mean, the, the premise of a class six well is, you know, it's, it's, it's just, a, you know, there's class one through five and now there's class six in terms of, you know, just how the EPA permits permits wells. And, and so the class six well is, is a class of well that's intended for just permanent storage of, of CO2. And it's not that it's the first time that CO2 will be injected into, you know, in, you know, in, in terms of geological storage. And in fact, you know, class two wells are, are, have been used widely for, for EOR for, for decades in the U.S. So I think that, you know, the experience set in the U.S. to do, you know, CO2 sequestration is, is pretty broad. And, and I think that in general, it's a, it's a relatively low risk part of the business. Um, What's challenging is again the the class six as a as a as a new class of well. Um, so far, the EPA has only actually issued three class six permits, and they've all been related to ethanol plants so far. Uh, so there hasn't been a, a DAC project specifically related or or connected to a class six well. So that's certainly a first for 
us is, you know, we, we, we're pretty sure we'll be the first, uh, the first DAC project to be injecting into a proper class six well. So, you know, right now the, the EPA is, is backlogged in issuing class six permits. And, and so I think, you know, if you are starting from scratch today and you're, you're relying on, on a, on a, you know, the, the process to get your class six well, you'll probably be waiting for a few years, but there's a couple places where that differs. And so Wyoming and North Dakota, you know, had the foresight several years ago to petition the EPA to, to gain primacy, uh, over the issuing of class six wells. And that doesn't mean that the EPA is not involved, but it just means that that process can be can be done in conjunction with the EPA, but by but by the state. And so, because of that, you know the the ability for Wyoming to move quicker than in general other states is is a big reason why we're in Wyoming as well. And so, and so I think that you know, so there's nothing unique about a Class Six well other than it's just I would say the new and recognized and required class to to fit into the 45Q requirements for DAC plus sequestration. So I think you know it's. It's just a matter of uh, it's just a matter of us again just going through with our partners through the process and and I think again the the, the location in Wyoming is kind of central to us being able to be going that quickly. You made quick mention of of the use of class two wells in the past for enhanced oil recovery or EOR. Is is EOR at, at this point in your roadmap at all? Short answer is no, and and I think this is what we're talking about because I think that uh, you know. Direct air capture and its application, you know, in, in enhanced oil recovery, the decarbonizing of traditional fossil fuels is a, it's, it's kind of a hot topic and it, it's definitely polarizing. And I think that there's certainly critics of DAC that say, you know, DAC is, is really just a, a tool that's being co-opted by energy companies to, uh, to allow the continued production of fossil fuels when you really, the focus should be elsewhere. And, and, you know, so I'm going to say, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I think that that's a misguided way to look at, uh, you know, at, at, at DAC and especially, you know, the involvement of energy companies with DAC, you know, that said, we're, we have our particular mission. Our, our mission is around carbon removal. It's, it's not, uh, it's not about the reduction of emissions of the existing energy system. Now, having said that, you know, like if, if there are others out there that that's their focus, you know, those industries have to decarbonize and they, they're going to have to find, you know, probably creative ways to do that. And I think I'm glad they are. And I, I think from that perspective, I, I don't think, you know, from that people should be viewing this as, you know, as, as, you know, DAC is a, is a tool of the energy companies. It, it is, but it's also a tool of companies like ours to, to deal with the other part of the math of getting to net zero, which is the removal piece of it. So I, I'm actually really glad in some ways that the application of DAC is, a, is as broad as it is, because you know, for sure there wouldn't be something called the bipartisan, you know, the, you know, the infrastructure bill that includes DAC hubs if we didn't have this broad way to look at direct air capture. And there's not many technologies in climate that, uh, that kind of walk down the middle of this uh, sort of existing energy system and the transition in, uh, towards a new energy system where you know, people can align themselves on both sides of, of the aisle to, uh, to the need for direct air capture. And you know, it's again, even though you know, in the IRA, it didn't garner any Republican votes. I don't think that you should assume that uh, you know the, that the changes to the 45Q didn't have a, a, a broad amount of bipartisan support uh, in advance of, uh, of passing the IRA. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the bipartisan support behind direct air capture uh, has been pretty heartening. I think you're right. I think it's because there are many applications, and so there are different ways to get behind the technology. And it plays a critical role in in decarbonizing many different sectors. I'm excited about the role that direct air capture plays around uh, addressing hard to abate emissions that come out of heavy industry and aviation, some of these other sectors that we don't really have cost effective ways of reducing emissions. And so we'll need 
permanent CDR and direct air capture in particular to, to help us get there. So you've touched on this already a little bit around the selection of Wyoming as a place to deploy Project Bison. What else about Wyoming made it an attractive uh, state for this, this inaugural project? Yeah. So I, I think we already mentioned again, too, is, you know, it's got the legislative advantages and the fact that they've got the, the primacy for the issuing of plastics well, it's a big one. Second is that they've got some amongst the best geology in the U.S. for for doing deep sequestration of CO2. So I think, you know, it's not just in the regions that we're looking at. I think they're broadly, the, the, the state has a lot of advantages in terms of, you know, a, a, a lot of pore space that's suitable for uh, for sequestration. So that's a, that's that's a second, and I think just sort of um, you know what well, you know we we've spent a lot of time and we're we're spending more and more time in in Wyoming and in doing you know, obviously working with state, uh, but also doing a lot of you know outreach at the community level as well. And uh, in general, what I would say is that you know the, the state is not afraid to be the first to do something, and and I think that that mentality or that approach that they've got, and maybe again it's that sort of that frontier mentality of Wyoming, is is really been you know making it really, I would say easy, but it's, you know, definitely there's been, you know, support and pull for us to choose Wyoming as, as a project site. And, you know, right down to the, you know, we've certainly got, uh, you know, I think a consistent message even back from the governor's office that, uh, you know, he is, you know, is very supportive of, of doing what he can to, to make sure that the first large DAC projects are located within a state. Yeah, that political leadership can really go a long way on top of some of the other kind of substantive advantages that, that a certain geography might have. My view is that having the right complement of policies in place are probably the most important lever to scaling up permanent carbon removal. In your press release announcing Project Bison, Carbon Capture made a point to specifically mention that recently passed legislation is going to be central to getting Project Bison off the ground. Tell me more about that. What policies specifically helped spur this launch? And what policies would you like to see to help drive further adoption of technologies like direct air capture? Sure. And, and I think the reference there is specifically to the Inflation Reduction Act that was that was passed and uh, and and the specific adjustments that were made to the 45Q, which is the IRS's uh, subsidies for for sequestration of CO2. And so, you know, for direct air capture, you know, there was four main things that that were changed in 45Q that are really substantive. And, and I would say they're, they're definitely a catalyst for this industry growing a lot faster. For, first is the is the uh, the monetary change. So direct air capture plus sequestration into a class six well went from $50 a ton to $180 a ton. So that, that's basically, you know, sets the base value of doing a direct air capture and sequestration. And, and, and that's, you know, the sort of the second piece is that that's, that's for a long time. So that's for projects that make investment decisions or final investment decisions up to 2033 plus another 12 years. So this is actually setting the foundation for direct air capture just in the context of carbon removal out to 2045. And that's that's a big deal when you're trying to think about, you know, the kinds and levels of, of infrastructure investment that are required. Um, so that's sort of, you know, so it's dollars and time. But also on the sort of the early days, it, it does a couple other things. One is that they reduce the minimum project size from 100,000 tons a year down to 1,000 tons a year. And that means that, you know, for even our planned deployment starting in 2023, right from day one, this will actually be a source of revenue for the project. And the other thing that they've done is recognizing, you know, and, and facilitating smaller development companies going out and deploying hardware. They they actually made this direct pay as opposed to being a tax credit for the first five years of every project. And so it 
it means, you know, for a company like us, we don't have to go through the complexities of getting a tax equity partner to be able to monetize the, the value of this of this credit system. So so all those things together basically form a, a really good foundation for the business that sits sort of, you know, in support of all of the things that are going on on the voluntary credit purchase side, where, you know, as I'm sure you've talked about in your in your previous podcast, just the, uh, you know, the support that's sort of one and a half or $2 billion for the early purchases of, of engineered carbon removals, um, you know, is that that really actually now allows us to think about what happens, you know, over the next 10 years as being actually a business as opposed to a project or, a, you know, a, a subsidized project. Yeah. And those changes to the 45Q tax credit, including the direct pay piece, I think effectively make it the most generous kind of subsidy for permanent carbon removal in the world, which kind of puts the United States in the lead as so far as, as deploying carbon removal is concerned. Yeah, uh, for sure. And again, you know, it's, 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 it's absolutely sort of cemented our commitment to focus, you know, especially between now and, you know, and, and, and 2030 on projects that are based in in the U.S. And, and of course, you know, we'll see how things uh, play out with the DAC hubs as well. So obviously, you know, we're still waiting to get the uh, the funding announcement coming in the next couple of weeks that are going to define what that looks like. But that extra, you know, three and a half billion dollars to support those those projects, those early projects as well is is most certainly going to be impactful to, uh, you know, the U.S. establishing itself as as basically where the first big projects are going to happen. Yeah. The, the United States is really kind of pulling out as a, a leader in in this space. So I'm sorry to interrupt you, but I also thought since you're Canadian as well, so we should we shouldn't lose sight of the fact too that the Canada has also has taken some pretty big bold steps in terms of you know what they are willing to do to also support uh, a DAC projects, and and so there's a a refundable ITC or investment tax credit of sixty percent for for DAC plus sequestration projects. Uh, you know that's that's basically in. We we expect it's going to be approved in the upcoming the budget this this fall in Canada as well too. So you know yeah. So North America, you know, even thinking you know expanding this conversation outside the U.S. to include North America, certainly you know that's uh, you know that's something that we're paying attention to. Um, you know, we're still focused on the U.S. first and foremost, but I think North America is is interesting for sure. Yeah, it seems like the United States is going the production tax credit way. Whereas Canada's gone the investment tax credit way um, in terms of supporting direct air capture. Either way, I think this is a good thing for direct air capture and trying to figure out then, I guess, as part of my next question, you know, what are some of the other elements, the policy, regulatory, and market elements that, that are necessary to make a project like Project Bison a reality? You know, now that you've got this plan in place to deploy 5 million ton per year DAC plant in Wyoming, tell us more about what an ideal enabling environment really looks like in order to do this in more places. Yeah, I, th I think that, you know, there's a, there's still potentially a gap in the supply demand curve that, you know, that bridges where, you know, these early tech companies are willing to pay, you know, hundreds of dollars per ton uh, on a voluntary basis for engineer carbon removal credits. And this big market that everybody talks about, which is the hundred or a hundred, $150 a ton, you know, that gets us to gigatons. And, you know, the, there's likely a gap also, you know, in, in sort of the middle. And I think there's a role to play, you know, in terms of federal and government procurement, because they also have a big footprint as well, too. And I think that, uh, you know, there is legislation on the books right now in the U.S. to uh, to think about a procurement bill around, you know, 
setting basically a, a, a commitment to purchase a certain amount at a certain price, you know, kind of like what they did with the, um, you know, with the purchase or, or the purchases of vaccines just saying, you know, this is what we're willing to pay. You fulfill the, you fulfill this, uh, this order will pay you. Right. So, so that's not in play yet. Uh, it's not, it's not law yet, but I think there's certainly an opportunity there for, for the federal government to step in and, and, and basically bridge what that potential gap looks like between the, the early high price purchases and the, the broad sort of, the broad market that's going to be out there, which is going to you know, be be dealing with, I would say that you know every industry beyond just the tech companies. Yeah, there's there's really an opportunity for the government to play a catalytic role through just a smart and well designed procurement mechanism of sorts, and you know that hasn't really been done for carbon removal yet. That you know government procurement is is a tricky thing to figure out, but I think there's definitely a need to to make sense of, of how to do that in a way that, that reduces risk for government. And also I think stimulates the market to get between that bridge you're talking about where you have these very high price, but low volume early purchases. And then where this is ultimately going, which is at that hundred, $150 per ton, uh, larger volumes, there's that, that gap that still definitely needs to be, be bridged. And, and we touched on Canada as a potential, you know, country for DAC deployment, which, which would be wonderful to see. Where else in the world are you looking to deploy large-scale DAC facilities? Well, I think when we, you know, I think about the practical, you know, the practical realities of us doing projects outside of North America. I think that happens at a point at which, you know, we've got a product, you know, we can act more as an OEM to project developers that are, you know, that are operating in other regions. Because obviously, you know, this is this one of these unique business opportunities and unique, well, unique, first of all, unique problem in that, you know, CO2 is a global problem, meaning, you know, doesn't really matter where you are on the planet. It's, you know, you, you have to live with it, but it also means that, you know, you can, you can also choose, a, you know, in any region in, in the world to, to take this problem on and, uh, and, you know, and, and create an industry around it. So, so I think that, you know, for sure, the Middle East, I think, you know, with the renewables assets they have, I think Sub-Saharan Africa, like there's, this is a really interesting opportunity in that you could also think about, you know, maybe where, you know, the problem was caused by, you know, sort of, I would say some unfair distribution of wealth caused by where, you know, energy was or where the oil, the oil industry, uh, you know, initiated this, this could be me a little bit, a little bit more socially um, equitable in terms of how you deploy DAC over time. There's, you know, there's, I think there's, there's opportunity there, but that's not going to be us doing project development in, in these different regions. So, so I think, you know, right now, you know, when I think about that for us, it's probably, you know, post 2030, when we are thinking again about, uh, about being more of an OEM for these projects. Um, I think there's another sort of opportunity for DAC though, which is not necessarily in the carbon removal space. And I think you, you mentioned it on the intro is that, you know, the, the idea of getting to net zero being, you know, a whole bunch of emissions reductions plus carbon removal. The emission reductions, uh, there's a big opportunity for basically the substitution of fossil carbon for for atmospheric carbon and particularly with fuels. And so, you know, I would have thought again too that, you know, that's that was a decade out before, you know, we would be in a position to think seriously about fuels as a component of our business. But the uh, the but the Inflation Reduction Act also did a lot to change our thinking around the economics of fuel in the in in the nearer term. And so you know, the, the combination of the, of the tax credits around hydrogen, um, the blenders credits for SAF for sustainable aviation fuel, um, the, you know, I would say the, the, the much improved ITC is on renewables to produce the hydrogen plus DAC, um, you know, for, for what we're looking at, and, you know, our, our initial analysis, of the space is that, you know, the cost competitiveness of SAF made from renewable hydrogen and, uh, 
and direct air capture uh, sourced CO2 is is probably you know a decade earlier than we thought. So, um, so I think that you know the opportunity on fuels is is actually I think you know for us probably again more interesting than thinking about being geographically really broad and how we deploy the technology. Wow, that's really interesting, and it it just goes to show just well designed and well executed policy can really go a long way in accelerating innovation and the way that that you all are thinking about it. Where can people learn more about Carbon Capture, Project Bison, and just generally kind of stay up to date on all the great work you're doing? Well, I think, you know, the, the obvious thing is it's our website. So we, we it's really simple. It's carboncapture.com. Uh, and so I think that if you go there as a starting point, uh, there's good connections to, you know, what, how we're thinking about the technology, a whole section on Project Bison, a whole section on, you know, us trying again to attract good people to our company as well, too, because we're, we're growing really fast right now, too. And so, you know, again, anybody who's interested in reaching out to us uh, because they you know, are interested in a career with, uh, with carbon removal, you know, would love to hear from you i think i think that's probably that's probably the uh, the, the best way to, to to learn more about carbon capture and i'll make sure to add links to all of those but really excited about the work you're undertaking and this ambitious plan to to build out a five million ton per year DAC plant and the growth that goes beyond that so adrian thank you so much for taking the time i really appreciate it you know, Naim, it was my pleasure. I really enjoyed the conversation and uh, yeah, look forward to getting the chance to talk to you again. Wonderful. Thanks again to today's sponsor, Carbon Future. Carbon Future is an end-to-end platform for companies who want to participate in removing carbon from the atmosphere. Unlike conventional marketplaces, Carbon Future's monitoring, reporting, and verification platform solves carbon credit uncertainty for buyers like Microsoft and Swiss Re, while Carbon Future's support helps scale the world's most promising carbon removal ventures for real climate impact. You can learn more at carbonfuture.earth.